Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Zane Asher, and here is what you need to know. Oil prices spike, the market reacts to the weekend attacks on Saudi Aramco, threatening the global oil supply. And walking out, tens of thousands of General Motors workers go on strike after union talks break down. And Purdue Pharma files for bankruptcy. The maker of Oxycontin came to a framework agreement to settle lawsuits over the opioid epidemic. It's Monday, and this is First Move. All right, welcome to First Move, everyone. I'm Zane Asher. Let's get you caught up on the action in the oil markets right now after this weekend's attacks on Saudi oil facilities. Uh, oil prices took their biggest jump in decades earlier in the day, with Brent crude surging almost 20%, about 10% uh, right now. Prices are off their highs, but still posting one of their biggest daily advances in years. Both Brent and the U.S., as I mentioned, are up uh, about 10% right now. Here on Wall Street, futures are pointing to losses of more than a quarter of a percent for U.S. stocks. As investors ponder the economic implication of the attacks and the chances of a U.S. retaliatory strike, the global oil outlook will be one of the big factors for the Fed to consider as it meets to discuss interest rates this week. And stocks are lower across the board in Europe. We mostly finished lower in Asia as well. Japanese stocks were closed because of a holiday. In the meantime, Stocks of major oil companies are rallying on expectations for higher oil prices. Shares of uh, U.S. oil majors Exxon Chevron are up about 3% or more in pre-market trading. So oil is, of course, uh, the main driver for today. The U.S. president has threatened retaliation for the strikes that have disrupted Saudi Arabia's crude oil output. Mr. Trump tweeted that the U.S. believes it knows who is behind the attacks and is locked and loaded to respond pending verification. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is publicly accusing Iran. Uh, Tehran has denied responsibility, but a commander of the Revolutionary Guard Corps says Iran is ready for war. Nick Robertson is in Saudi capital. Riyadh, we've also got John Defterios, life president in Abu Dhabi. Nick, I want to begin with you, though. Um, so what sort of response might we see from Saudi Arabia and the United States? Well, President Trump has made it clear already that he's locked and loaded, so that's a robust response, but he's put it off on the Saudi leadership uh, to take their direction. Um, he has clearly indicated that he's willing to do um, what they want. Uh, I mean, obviously not as fulsome as everything that they want. But I think we're really watching the Saudi leadership at the moment, and I think the fact that we haven't heard them blame Iran, that they believe uh, that there's good reason for the, in their assessment to not take what the Houthis are saying at face value, that it was them firing these uh, drones, these sophisticated drones from Yemen, that that doesn't add up. And they think more likely these weapons came from the northwest, possibly Iran, uh, possibly Iraq. But, but, the, but the Saudi officials are not saying this on the record at the moment. And I think the very fact that the headline of one of the national newspapers here today um, talks about concern at the United Nations rather than talking about uh, what Saudi is going to do, it seems a sort of a diplomatic holding pattern. So what may they do? Um, clearly, they cannot have this type of uh, act against them happen again. Clearly, they need to send a strong message that will uh, put any, any actor, state or otherwise, off from, from this sort of attack. But 
And it's hard to imagine how that can be achieved diplomatically. However, the UNGA is a few days away. Um, that's worth noting. But a, a military strike of some sort uh, still seems to be an option. But we don't know what the, what the leadership here, the government in Saudi Arabia, is considering because they're not saying it. They're not making it public. The, and I think this is an expression of caution. But it's also an expression here that this is a very, very finely balanced complex situation that's taken regional tensions to an absolute new level that, that hasn't been seen here in decades. Um, so Nick, stand by. Uh, John, let me bring you in. So how long will it take to actually get oil production from Saudi Arabia back online after this uh, attack? That's the big unknown, uh, Zain, and I've been speaking to sources in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they say this is going to take weeks, not days, and they described it as an unprecedented strike. In fact, it's a record knocking out 5.7 million barrels a day in one whack. We've seen other disruptions here uh, in the Middle East that Nick was referring to, but these have all played out in terms of lost production over a span of 12 to 24 months, not in a single day. Uh, this is the damage to the oil markets. As you suggest, we had this spike up of 20% at the open. It didn't last. They cut the losses in half, but still gains over $6 for Brent and better than $5 for WTI is substantial. Now, this is a very fragile balance that the Saudis need to try to manage expectations here. Uh, I'm told by sources that they have about 200 million barrels of supply, uh, which could last them about 35 to 40 days on the lost production they have right now. But I'm then reading flashes on my phone coming from Riyadh uh, suggesting for the first week alone, we can sustain this level of production. So again, they're not trying to overplay their recovery going forward, which raises questions about the strategic petroleum reserve in the United States. Donald Trump said they're ready to use it, but the key questions for the oil traders around the world, when are you gonna release it? Because it takes at least a week or two weeks to get it out of the system. And what level are you gonna put onto the market? Is it a million, two million, three million barrels a day? Because that's the void that we're talking about right now. And again, for context here, having covered the invasion of Kuwait back to 1990. It shocked the world oil market, but this is on an entirely different scale in size. Same thing with the Iran-Iraq war, the invasion of Iraq, the overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya. Uh, this is in a different league entirely. And because of the U.S. sanctions, Zane, uh, against Venezuela and Iran, there's not a lot of spare capacity, not only in OPEC, but in the world right now to fill the void of better than 5 million barrels. All right, uh, uh, John Defterios, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, 48,000 auto workers have downed tools at factories across the United States. Members of the United Auto Workers Union walking out of 31 factories and accusing General Motors of putting profits ahead of people. Vanessa Yokevich joins us live now with the latest. So in terms of the strike, Vanessa, what exactly is GM offering these workers and what are the workers, the union rather, demanding? Yeah, good morning, Zane. These workers behind me have been out here some since midnight when this strike took place. This is because GM and the UAW, the union, could not come to an agreement. If you take a look, some of these workers have been in this picket line for hours now. And what General Motors is saying is that they have offered a very strong and fair contract. But the union saying, hey, this does not go far enough. They are asking for stronger health benefits for uh, more of an aggressive starting wage for these employees and also more protections for their employees. We spoke to one woman very early in the morning who had been out here since about midnight, and we asked her why she's here today on strike. Take a listen. 
We are striking because we want to be treated fairly. This job is very important to me. I am a third generation General Motors employee. Okay? I have two sisters that work here at Detroit Hamtramck with me as well. My father was here and his uncle before him. Three generations. I have children and my children will have children and I want this place to still be around for them. Blood, sweat and tears. You bleed. You cry. You get upset. You get frustrated. You get rolled up. You get put out. You know, we work hard for these cars. We do this so that you guys can have a quality product. If the company is profitable, we want to share in those profits. And many of these workers out here for hours, and I asked them, how long do they plan to strike? They say as long as it takes. They're really hoping that the union can go into a meeting today and negotiate on their behalf for fair wages. They are going to be, be out here, though, Zane, as long as that takes. Zane. And let's just give us more context about what's going to be happening uh, in these talks. It's about to happen in about an hour or so from now, 10 a.m. Eastern time. Because as long as this strike continues, I mean, it could really hit GM hard in terms of profitability. Exactly. Just about 10 minutes down the road, the UAW and GM is going to be meeting at around 10 a.m. Eastern time. And the union is going into this meeting a little bit frustrated. They say that GM has only met them at about 2% of their demand. So there's clearly a big gap in where they want to be. But every day that these employees uh, are not on the job, not producing uh, automobiles for the United States, GM is taking a hit. So both sides clearly eager to make the deal. But as it stands right now, really a stark difference in where they stand. So we'll have to see what happens after that 10 o'clock meeting. Very critical to know a little bit more about how close they may be. Zane. All right, Vanessa, Yukevich, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The pharma giant Purdue is filing for bankruptcy. It is part of an agreement to settle lawsuits accusing of helping drive America's opioid prices. Gene Casares uh, is joining us live now. So, Gene, just for our international audience, Purdue is the maker of OxyContin. And uh, a lot of people are blaming them for the opioid crisis in the United States has caused many, many deaths. Just walk us through how this company is defending themselves and also uh, what this settlement is just in terms of a monetary value. Exactly. Well, this is the mega giant uh, Purdue Pharma in the United States. They manufacture OxyContin. They are really the largest defendant in this national opioid litigation that's going on right now. And so every everyone was looking at them because there were settlement negotiations going on and they said, look, we're going to go into bankruptcy here. They did. They filed it last night. What does that mean? Well, there will be a plan of reorganization because it now will all be in the bankruptcy court. But what had been agreed to prior to filing for bankruptcy was this. The Sackler family that owns Purdue Pharma would guarantee $3 billion would be given to communities and states and municipalities all over the country. In addition to that, they will sell Purdue Pharma and 30 to 40 of their international businesses. 90% of those proceeds will be given to communities around the country. 10% will be kept by the Sackler family. Also, they are now uh, manufacturing a drug that will be given to those around the country that are currently addicted. The Sacklers say they will take no monies from this. It is worth $4 billion, but that will be distributed all around the country and to territories. Very important to the Sackler family because they have been sued personally, individually, by so many states and others. It's called a channel injunction. They will want the federal court 
to not have them be personally responsible for anything, but to have it to be part of the bankruptcy proceeding. That's up to the judge. And will they continue to sell opioids at all? Well, that's an open question. The judge will make the decision. The test is, is it beneficial to creditors? Of course, it would be because they'll get money, but the negative is the morality of this because that's the whole point why this all happened is because of the selling of opioids. Zane? So, so Jean, just to put this into context for our viewers, um, Purdue and the Sackler family allegedly knew that this drug, OxyContin, was highly addictive and very, very high strength, and they continued to market it very, very aggressively. Have they actually admitted to wrongdoing in the various statements that they put out? No, they have not admitted to wrongdoing. And as part of any settlement agreement, they would not admit to wrongdoing. And as you very correctly said, it is the allegation. This is a trial that is set to begin in October, the first trial of the national litigation. And all of those things you're mentioning, whether they knew, whether they lied as they marketed this drug or whether they were following FDA requirements, that those would be material issues of facts. They no longer will be part of this litigation because now they filed for bankruptcy and will no longer be a defendant. But there are many other defendants. All right, Jinx Sara's life for us there. Thank you so much. So uh, these are the headlines or stories rather making headlines around the world. Hong Kong has seen its 15th straight weekend of anti-government protests. On Sunday, 89 people were arrested after some protesters threw petrol bombs at police who responded with rubber bullets and water cannon. Dozens were injured. The man who gave Britain a referendum on leaving the EU, triggering years of Brexit uncertainty, has been speaking out about how he feels now. Uh, former Prime Minister David Cameron told Britain's ITV News that he thinks about his decision every single day, wondering how different things could have been. I, t I totally look up. If you're asking me, do I have regrets? Yes. Am I sorry about the state the country's got into? Yes. Do I feel I have some responsibility for that? Yes. It was my referendum, my campaign, my decision to try and renegotiate. And I accept all of those things. And people, including those watching this programme, will have to decide how much blame to put on me. I but think I accept, and I, I, you know, I can't put it more bluntly than this, I accept that that attempt failed. Right, stay with us for more on Brexit. We're expected to hear from British Prime Minister Boris Johnson in Luxembourg this hour. All right, coming up on First Move, as the consequences of the Saudi oil refinery attacks ripple around the world, the former U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia joins us live to discuss. Plus, a dent in the Chinese economy as industrial numbers fall to the worst in a decade. We'll get you the details from Hong Kong. All right, welcome back to First Move. U.S. futures are still pointing to a lower open across the board here on Wall Street. Take a look there. The Dow is down about 100 points or so. All of this after this weekend's drone attacks on Saudi oil facilities. Stocks look to set to pull back after three straight weeks of gain. The Dow has actually risen for eight straight sessions on hopes that the U.S. and the Chinese are inching ever so slowly towards a trade deal. Safe havens like gold are higher today. And U.S. Treasury yields are falling as investors snap up less risky assets following the Saudi attacks. Now, the slowing Chinese economy is heavily dependent on oil imports, and its economy could be hit hard by higher prices. All of this as the Chinese manufacturing sector continues to weaken. Andrew Stevens joins us live now 
uh, from Hong Kong. So, Andrew, we obviously saw disappointing new numbers from Chinese factories today. Just walk us through how the trade war has impacted China already in the context of a slowing economy. Yeah, that's right, Zane. Uh, we, we've got some fairly graphic numbers coming out today just showing exactly how the Chinese economy is slowing. And it's all been underpinned by a pretty startling uh, revelation from the, the number two uh, of the Chinese hierarchy, Li Keqiang, who's basically the premier of China, who said today that uh, it was going to be very difficult for China to get 6% growth or above. Now, China has actually made it a target of between 6 and 6.5% growth for 2019. And you have the man who's usually regarded as, as the economic leader in, in China now saying it's going to be a very, very tough ask and everything seems to be pointing down. And he's saying that uh, on the back of these numbers which we've seen today. Industrial production, weaker than expected. The stuff that factories are producing, the stuff that they're selling around the world, particularly to the US industrial production, uh, up 4.5%. Uh, it was supposed to be penciled in to be 5.2% higher. So that gives you an idea of just how quickly it's, it's falling and how much more it's falling than e economists are thinking, Zane. Retail sales came out today, 7.5% growth for the month of August. That was again against an expectation of 7.9%. A fixed asset investment for the first eight of the years are coming in at 5.5%, again below expectations. So three big pointers there. You've got factory output, you've got people not buying anymore, and you've got people investing less as well. So you put those three together, they are three key engines of growth for China, all slowing more sharply than expected, and all because of the trade war and because of the fact that China has been slowing for the past couple of years because they've been trying to deleverage, trying to get the debt out of the system zone. Yeah, so trade war, obviously, one factor there. But let's talk about uh, the fallout from the Saudi oil fields attacks that we saw this weekend. What is likely going to be the impact on Asian countries, specifically China, countries that really rely heavily on Saudi oil? Well, you're right about China. China. China is the world's biggest importer of oil. It imports about 9 million barrels a day, which incidentally is roughly what Saudi Arabia produces. It doesn't import all, all from Saudi. About half of all China's imports come from the Middle East. But the point is, you've got now oil prices 10% higher. And if it stays at 10% higher, if a premium gets baked into the oil price, A, because of the vulnerability now of the Saudi oil facilities, B, because of the rising geopolitical tensions, or C, because the Saudis have been damaged much more than we know. It's going to take longer than a few weeks to get it online. That's all going to contribute to this higher oil price, which hurts the Chinese economy, like it hurts any economy which is dependent on imported oil. So China has strategic reserves, just like the US, just like most countries. We don't know the size of those reserves, saying uh, it's talked about around 400 million barrels, which would make it slightly smaller than the US probably about 90 days worth of supply. But the Chinese, like every other key importer, is going to be hoping that the damage is not as bad and is going to get fixed much more quickly than the worst case scenarios we're hearing, which could be months rather than weeks. All right, Andrew Stevens, appreciate it. Uh, for more on the markets and the fallout from the Saudi oil field attacks, I'm now joined now uh, by Chris Watling. He is the founder and CEO of Longview Economics. Uh, Chris, appreciate you Hi. being with us. So uh, we just saw futures there. Dow's down about 100 points. Market's obviously set to open in about eight minutes from now. Wouldn't you have anticipated that the Dow would be down further given the attacks this weekend? Yeah, I think that's remarkably impressive how little the markets reacted, really. Obviously, they're down a bit and, and bond yields are moving and, and the oil prices moved dramatically. 
basically. But overnight, there's been a, re- a reassessment, obviously, of, of facts so far. And markets have been open for 12 hours, really, if you take into account Asian trading, in fact, even longer. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's markets telling you that perhaps things aren't as bad as they seem. So how long until um, the oil markets recover? Obviously, we're seeing a spike now when it comes to Brent crude. Does it just purely depend on how quickly the Saudis can get everything back online? We're hearing it could take weeks rather than days, according to our John Defterios. But uh, Andrew Stevens was just there saying that hopefully it won't be months. Yeah, I mean, that, that really is the key factor, and that's the great unknown. How quickly can this production come back on? Because let's not forget, before the attack, the world was sort of awash with oil. There's plenty of it. OPEC was holding back its supply to, to con- try and control the price and underpin the price. So there's plenty, there, before the attack, there was plenty of oil around. There's plenty in inventories in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve that we've heard Trump's going to release. And also Saudi's got lots of reserves around the world and there's a bit of OPEC spare capacity. So really the key variable here is how quickly do they get all this production back online? Because if it's short term, we're fine. Right, if right. it's long term, we've got that's a problem. A, that's a problem. OK, so uh, U.S. shale, though, President Trump talking about that. Um, can we really rely on U.S. shale? I mean, how much can we rely on U.S. shale to prop up? Well, you know, over time, U.S. shale has been absolutely incredible. I mean, the growth in U.S. shale, I think production has broadly doubled in the last five or six years, and it keeps surpassing expectations, and the break-even price of shale producers keeps falling, which is one of the reasons the market's so well supplied with oil before this attack. So, yes, you can rely on shale, but, you know, it's not, it's not literally overnight. It's pretty quick in terms of turning oil back on, but it's not literally overnight. So we need some of this production back. Okay, let's rewind a few days because before these attacks on on Saturday, um, the biggest sort of talker for the markets was obviously uh, the detente in terms of the trade war between the US and China. Um, You know, how much is that still in investors' minds right now? And do they really trust that this detente we saw last week with the Chinese not necessarily being willing to retaliate and wanting to delay will actually last and see us through to a truce? Well, it's difficult to know, isn't it? But I think the markets are buying into the idea that Trump's got an election coming. So he needs a deal. And as we saw with the Chinese data overnight, it's weak. So really, they need a deal. So everyone needs a deal, whether it's a a half deal or a fudge, who knows? But all of that... Chinese must be desperate right now, given the numbers we just saw come in and how it's affecting their economy. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're now talking about GDP growth with a five in front of it. I mean, China's economy is under a lot of pressure, really across the board. And everyone talks about housing being strong in China. But even housing... Housing's rolling over, and that's been their strongest area over the last 12, 18 months. So then the Fed, uh, we all know, let's be real, we all know the Fed is going to cut interest rates. But does it at all affect how much if we see a slowing down in the trade war? Um, If if, if a slowdown in in the trade war and a move towards a deal. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think that takes some of the rate cuts out of the curve, Mm -hmm. but they're going to cut later on this week. And they'll probably cut one more time this year, I would have thought. But it's whether or not you get that third or fourth cut further down the line, I think, that's interesting in that respect. Right, Chris Watling, thank you so much. Appreciate you being with us. Chris Watling there from Longview Economics. All right, we've got the opening bell after the break, and we will see just what the impact is as soon as markets open, <coughs> as soon as markets open, excuse me, uh, of the Saudi oil attack that happened this weekend. See the Dow there just down about 100 points. My guest was just saying that it's remarkable that the market is that resilient, that we're not down even further than that. All right, see you on the other side of this break.
And with that, welcome everyone to Monday morning at the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, as expected, we did get a lower open across the board. If you pull up the numbers right now, let's see, the Dow is down 111 points already. Wall Street still reacting to this weekend's oil attacks on uh, Saudi facilities. Uh, shares of oil companies are rallying today, and that is helping limit, limit the damage on the Dow. But shares of oil price sensitive airlines are falling down the S&P 500. Come into this session less than 1% away from record highs after a broad-based advance last week. Investors sank almost $4.5 billion into global stock mutual funds over the past week as trade tensions between the U.S. and China eased the strongest cash inflow in more than a year. Let's talk about the global movers uh, with you. General Motors opening down today. This is 48,000 auto workers strike for better pay. The United Auto Workers Union and GM are set for more talks later today. Meanwhile, the shares of oil majors are higher after the attacks on Saudi Aramco's refinery. Oil prices are spiking after those attacks on Saudi Arabian facilities disrupted supply. Crude is up around 10% after the strikes took out half of Saudi production, about 5% of global output. Oil is off its earlier highs. Earlier, Brent crude saw its biggest intraday jump since the 1991 Gulf War. Joining me now, live now is Robert Jordan. He was the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia between 2001 and 2003. Ambassador, thank you so much for being with us. I mean, obviously, the world is talking about uh, oil markets right now and the reaction there, but um, we have to remember the humanitarian aspect of the war in Yemen. Um, just walk us through that. The UN is calling this the worst humanitarian, man-made humanitarian crisis the world has ever seen. Well, it's a, it's a horrendous uh, catastrophe uh, in Yemen. Uh, the Saudi uh, war in Yemen appears to have no political solution right now. Uh, they have uh, been bombing civilian populations using American bombs uh, and have uh, really committed atrocities uh, throughout the region uh, with this indiscriminate bombing. Uh, this is what the Houthis okay. Ambassador, are... Ambassador, Ambassador, unfortunately I have to interrupt you because we've got a press conference on the uh, oil attack on Saturday in Saudi Arabia. Let's listen in. The preliminary uh, investigation shows that the attack came from the Yemeni territories and uh, this was through the uh, Iranian Republican uh, Guards and uh, uh, the attack happened by the terrorist attacks. The uh, final uh, results of the investigations will be announced as soon as they finish, once the Saudi Arabian authorities have finished in accordance with the international law. There will be some uh, presentation of the types of arms that were used and uh, the places where the drones have been launched. These are the preliminary investigation indicate that this was Iranian and that uh, we are working to identify the places where they were launched from. There will be a press conference especially for uh, the uh, evidence and the material evidence in order the, to be shown to the uh, journalists and the media to show where the attack, terrorist attack started from.
The initial expert report from the joint coalition forces as reported last year about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, there has been uh, corrections to the uh, mistakes that were made on the uh, and the wrong information that was uh, presented from uh, uh, last year's report. Now we are working through investigations to follow that the methodology was used was not the correct methodology to deal with the issues in uh, uh, Yemen. We are here in Saudi Arabia, follow proper procedures and proper laws. All right, you've just been listening to a live uh, press conference from Colonel Turki al-Malik, who's the official spokesperson for the Saudi-led coalition fighting in Yemen, talking about the attack on Saudi oil fields on Saturday that knocked off 5% of the world's oil supply. Um, and they are clearly preparing a response, um, pointing the finger squarely at the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, who I want to bring back. Uh, ambassador Robert uh, Jordan, former ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia from 2001 to 2003. So just in terms of preparing some kind of response, what sort of calculation goes into this? Obviously, they're conducting an investigation, as they mentioned. Yeah, certainly, you want to get the facts straight first. Uh, the Saudis uh, have the principal responsibility for this. Uh, you need to determine, was this a drone attack? Was this a missile attack? Where did it come from? Uh, what are the, uh, what's the residue? What are the parts uh, that can be identified uh, before you try to assess blame? Obviously, Iran's fingerprints uh, must be all over this, uh, but we don't know whether it was a rogue operation. Uh, sometimes the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, are at odds with the political leadership in Rouhani, uh, and it may be that uh, there is some sort of split right now uh, that led to uh, this attack. Uh, so you've got to get the facts straight. Second, you've got to make sure that you have your allies lined up. Uh, the uh, European response to this has been fairly tepid so far. Perhaps they're also waiting for uh, factual uh, verification. Uh, the Brits and the Germans have condemned the attacks. Uh, we haven't heard from the French that I know of. Uh, and so we need to be sure that we have rallied our alliances uh, to have a unified front in responding to this. Uh, and finally, I think we've got to continue uh, the maximum pressure uh, policy of the Trump administration uh, and maybe convince our allies that they also uh, need to be much more skeptical of the, uh, the motives of Iran uh, in, in uh, dealing with them in connection with the nuclear agreement. So you've got all that going on, and then you've also, as we were saying earlier, I have the war in Yemen with the Houthis that has to be dealt with uh, somewhere down the line as well. The humanitarian catastrophe is important, but it's also important uh, to quit spending blood and treasure uh, on a war that has no apparent chance of success. So, uh, Ambassador, just the fact that um, the likely perpetrators, or the perpetrators rather, were the Houthi rebels, and even though Iranian the Iranians may have assisted the Houthi rebels, the fact that the Houthi rebels are a non-state actor, how much does that complicate a response for the uh, coalition? It makes it much harder because Iran will claim plausible deniability. Uh, they often act uh, through these proxies uh, throughout the entire region. 
And this is another example of it, which makes it very hard to hold them properly accountable. At some point, though, it seems uh, inescapable that their fingerprints are all over this. Uh, the Houthis uh, could not have invented uh, drone or missile technology to this extent. They had to have been aided substantially by Iran. So uh, just one of the probably and likely main priorities for the Saudis right now is really defending, making sure that they shore up their defenses when it comes to their oil fields. What are the challenges with that? I mean, what are the challenges with sort of how much money they spend and how they prioritize making sure that their facilities are as safe as possible? Well, their crown jewel in Aramco is really at stake here, and so they have to spare no expense uh, in coming up with uh, the proper technology and the proper intelligence uh, to resist attacks in the future. Uh, if Aramco is going to have any kind of IPO for their stock, they have to convince uh, the investing public uh, that these kinds of attacks are, uh, uh, can be properly defended against. Uh, it's, it is a game-changing technology. Drone technology and missile technology is very hard to defend against with conventional uh, Patriot missile batteries, for example. Uh, and so you've got to find ways to preempt the attacks. Uh, you have to find ways to detect uh, the attacks in the first place. This is something that the Saudis uh, are really going to have to deal with. It's going to add a risk premium uh, to the price of oil and perhaps uh, degrade uh, the investment reaction uh, to any kind of Aramco IPO. So in terms of uh, the geopolitical tensions in the region, um, obviously you saw President Trump come out and saying that the U.S. is locked and loaded. Obviously, just looking at the choice words, Iran sees those words, locked and loaded, and thinks what? I think they'll probably brush that off as uh, extreme uh, uh, braggadocio on the part of the president, uh, trying to sound, I guess, like John Wayne. but. Uh, uh, the real question is, what sort of tools do we have in America's toolbox to respond to this? Uh, a diplomatic solution, uh, further sanctions, rallying our allies, I think, is the best course at this stage. All right, Ambassador Robert Jordan, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us. All right, still to come face to face, but can they see eye to eye? The British Prime Minister meets the President of the European Commission and guess what's on the agenda. More on that next. Right, right now, uh, the British Prime Minister is in Luxembourg meeting with the EU's top officials. Boris Johnson has just been in talks with Luxembourg's Prime Minister after his face-to-face -face meeting with the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker. Nina Dos Santos is in Luxembourg for us. So, Nina, I understand that not much came out of this meeting in terms of the fact that the sticking points still remain and no surprises there. Yeah, it was a two-hour working lunch. First time that Boris Johnson, after taking the helm at Downing Street seven weeks ago, has actually met face-to-face -face with Jean-Claude Juncker, the most powerful man in the European Commission and the person who could really have a big say on how to unlock the Brexit dilemma. They um, dined for about two hours, came out, didn't say an awful lot. Eventually, Downing Street and the European Commission issued their own different statements. Downing Street's one was a bit more optimistic, as we've traditionally seen from Downing Street, saying that these were constructive talks, whereas the European Commission statement was a bit more terse, saying that the EU is willing to work round the clock, 24-7, over the next 50 days to come before the next Brexit deadline. But it did remind Boris Johnson that 
Uh, basically, the ball is in the UK's court that the UK needs to come up with concrete proposals to get over this issue of the Irish backstop that's the main sticking point, and that thus far the EU has not seen evidence of those concrete proposals. Well, what we're waiting for here is for Boris Johnson to have a press conference with Xavier Bittel, the Luxembourgish Prime Minister here, as you can see, in normally placid and taciturn Luxembourg, which is a grand duchy, the second smallest country in the EU. You don't normally get people on the streets, but both here and in the location where the, the restaurant where the uh, lunch took place with Jean-Claude Juncker, there have been people taking to the streets. This is a rather large vocal a community of dual citizens, some of them who hold British passports, who are dead against Boris Johnson's version of Brexit. And there's also a real feeling here that what we will see is a difference between the way how Downing Street is using language, saying that they're close to a deal, and the EU doggedly saying, frankly, they're as yet nowhere near one, Zane. All right, Nino Santos, live for us uh, from Luxembourg. Thank you so much. So cautious optimism from British Prime Minister, but how warranted is it? Speak to political commentator and Chatham House Associate Fellow Quinton Peel. Uh, so Boris Johnson, Quinton, is saying that he is cautiously optimistic. What exactly is there to be optimistic about? I think very little at this stage. Uh, Boris Johnson is in a really difficult hole. He's absolutely promised Scouts honour, do or die, that he will be he will have Britain out of the European Union by the 31st of October. But he's actually facing a parliament where he has no majority. His majority, so to speak, is minus 43 that has passed a law saying he can't do that. He's got to ask for an extension. And they've also blocked him on having an early general election. So he's desperate now to show that he's really trying to get a deal. His problem, I think, is that every time he comes up with any movement that might help get a deal on the British side, on the side of his own supporters, it's moving away from what the rest of the European Union can accept. And if he moves towards the European Union, he loses his own supporters. So he's really trapped. He's trying to make it sound good. But so far, there's very little sign of progress. So nobody wants a return to a, a hard border um, in Ireland. But just, just walk us through what the alternatives are. Obviously, the backstop continues to be the main sticking point. Is there a way around that? Well, the most likely would seem to be what they call a Northern Ireland only backstop. That's to say that Northern Ireland would essentially have the same rules and regulations as the Republic of Ireland next door, and then you don't need a border. And that, in essence, is what the backstop's supposed to do. But the present proposal would have the whole United Kingdom bound by EU rules, and that's what the Brexiters hate. So what about a Northern Ireland-only solution? That would be very acceptable to the European Union. They would find that no problem at all. That was their original proposal. The trouble is that the Unionists from Northern Ireland are horrified at the prospect because it would make Northern Ireland effectively different to the rest of the United Kingdom. And uh, they've got a lot of friends among the Brexiters who might well block that. So the chances of getting that through the British Parliament are very low. So just in terms of legally, um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson technically has until mid-October to get a deal with the EU. 
or ask for an extension. He said that he would rather be dead in a ditch than ask for an extension. But if you could look through your crystal ball, Quentin, um, do you <laughs> anticipate that by the middle of October, we will see Boris Johnson asking the Europeans for an extension? My crystal ball is somewhat cracked and cloudy, I confess. <laughs> but um, I think the chances are that one way or another, he will, but he's going to do everything he can to wriggle out of it. And one way is indeed to come back with a deal. And if he can come back with a deal and threaten the British Parliament that actually he really will crash out uh, without any deal at all, with all the really very painful consequences uh, for the British economy and for the British standing in the world, if he does that, then he might just get some people from the opposition, from the Labour side, who've always been inclined to go for Brexit, to come and support him. But it's a very difficult sum to, to go for. Um, so I think that the chances are he will indeed, one way or another, be forced to ask for some sort of extension. All right, Quentin Peel, live for us. Thank you so much. All right, coming up on First Move, after the drone attacks on Saudi oil facilities, the U.S. president says he'll dip into emergency fuel reserves if need be. We'll have the details next. All right, welcome back, everybody. Oil is up about 10% after drone attacks on Saudi Arabian oil facilities reduced global supplies earlier. Crude shot up about 20%. That is the biggest intraday spike since the 1991 Gulf War. The Saudi refinery attacks have clearly spooked the U.S. Uh, President Trump authorized the release of oil from the country's huge emergency reserve, if needed. For more on uh, this and how these attacks have impacted oil stocks. Paula Monica joins us live now. So let's talk about U.S. shale, uh, Paul. How is that likely to take the load off of Saudi Arabia? Yeah, I think obviously that the U.S. shale boom has made America a much bigger player, of course, on the global oil market. But you can't turn on production on a dime. It takes time to get this oil and gas to the open market. And that is a big reason why you're still seeing uh, you know, oil prices you know, rise so dramatically on this attack on those Saudi oil fields, because the Saudi you know, is, uh, uh, is still uh, you know, a huge percentage of the global oil market. So even with President Trump also agreeing to potentially release uh, oil supplies from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, that too would take time to filter out to the global market. So that's not going to mitigate any of this supply shock immediately. Hence, you're getting this dramatic spike in prices this morning. And the spike in prices is affecting various stocks differently. On the one hand, oil companies are getting a boost because of the higher prices, um, obviously being more beneficial to their profitability. But on the other hand, airline stocks weakened as a result of this because they rely heavily on oil as a cost. Yeah, definitely. You already had that graphic up earlier showing uh, Exxon and Chevron among the leaders in the Dow today. Marathon, another big oil company rising. But you're right. United, American, even Southwest, which is known for having their uh, hedges to try and mitigate some of the day-to-day uh, -day moves in fuel prices. They're all getting hit today because of concerns about this dramatic spike in oil. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens to companies like GM and Ford and other big autos uh, as well, because 
oil prices rising should eventually lead to higher gas prices, which could be a problem for these companies that are once again embracing big trucks and SUVs as their savior for sales. But they're not going to be as attractive in an environment where gas prices potentially are are higher. All right, Paula Monica, live for us there. Thank you so much. And before I leave you, I want to give you today's boardroom brief. Shares of Airbus are falling in Paris as the U.S. moves closer to placing tariffs on EU exporters. It's all part of a long-running dispute over state subsidies for plane makers. On Sunday, the World Trade Organization agreed to a U.S. request to hit the EU with tariffs. And shares in Norwegian Air are up over 5% after bondholders agreed to support the airline's debt relief plan. They're letting the airline postpone the repayment of $380 million of loans by up to two years. And a Chinese state-run newspaper has criticized the bid by Hong Kong Stock Exchange to buy the London Stock Exchange. The People's Daily pointed to the protests in Hong Kong, saying there are persistent worries. The LSE's board has rejected a $40 billion offer from the Hong Kong Exchange, but the bidder is still hoping to win LSE shareholder agreement. That's it for the show. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Zane Asher. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.